Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. We want you to challenge us for the best deal on a new Renault or Dacia in 2020. You can now inquire at blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Lots of chat again today. A little later in the show, we'll be going to Hong Kong and we'll be joined there by Aaron McNicholas. He was an intern with us here on Late Lunch for six months and he's now based with Bloomberg over there. And of course, the coronavirus, it's uh, all over the news at the moment. But Aaron, close to where the uh, first outbreak happened there. And he's going to be talking to us later. Darren McCullough is in, the most famous farmer in Ireland, to give the farming perspective to climate change. And Kira Conlon's here, the brilliant Kira Conlon, talking about setting goals and creating new good habits for the year ahead. But first up, you will know that the impeachment trial of US President Donald Trump is underway as we speak. And keeping a close eye on it every day, and I do keep a close eye on her since she was here in studio with us on late lunch, is the Irish Times Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch from Trimmon County Meath, and she's on the line. Good afternoon, Suzanne. Good afternoon or good morning from here in Washington. Yeah, your morning time there. Thank you so much for taking our call. Look, just to cut to the chase, reading you, following you closely all the time and trying to deduce uh, how this is going to pan out. Really, Suzanne, is the outcome obvious? He won't be impeached. Yeah, look, it is very, very like unlikely that he's going to be removed from office because of, of the math, as they say here, and there's 100, seats, 100 senators in the U.S. Senate and uh, to convict a president of impeachment. He's already been impeached and now they're deciding whether to convict him of this, if you like. But to convict him, they need two thirds of senators to endorse that. And um, they're not going to get that because Republicans, Donald Trump's party, have are in the majority. They have 53 seats. So you would need um, you know, a good few of those, more than a dozen of those, to vote with Democrats and um vote to impeach to remove him from office and that is not going to happen unless something huge comes out in the next few weeks but it is unlikely so it does look uh, like he'll be acquitted essentially um, and this is this has happened before this is only the third US president to be impeached um, but no one has, has been removed from office so even though Bill Clinton 21 years ago he was impeached there was a trial in the Senate like it's happening now um, but ultimately he was acquitted uh, so really no president has been removed from office. Richard Nixon, people remember, he resigned, mm. um, you know, jumped before uh, he was shoved, if you like. He resigned before the impeachment started, so who knows what happened there. But really, history is on the side of Donald Trump here. Uh, he probably will remain in office after the impeachment, 
But the Democrats felt that what he had done over Ukraine was so uh, such an abuse of his office that they felt really they had no choice. That as members of Congress, as custodians of the Constitution, they couldn't let this go. And that's why Nancy Pelosi, back in September, she's the top Democrat, said, no, enough is enough. He's crossed the line with this and we're going to move forward to impeachment. But you're right. Look, it looks very likely like he will be acquitted. Yes, and I see you right today in the Irish Times and to quote you say, uh, or a quote from uh, there says, uh, uh, by one of the uh, members of the House saying Congress must keep uh, a president in check. But here's my next question to you. Why go down this road? I know you say yeah. there you feel they had to do it, but is, is there a, a longer game here? Are they playing the long game. Is this with a view maybe to uh, getting into people's minds ahead of the election? Yes, I think that's exactly it. I mean, these, you know, Nancy Pelosi, again, the top Democrat, she's been around for a long time. She was there during the Clinton impeachment. You know, she's very politically astute. And I suppose she was feeling pressure from her own party, her own constituents. The, you know, people say 63 million people vote for Donald Trump. Well, more people vote for Hillary Clinton. And they were beginning to get frustrated that if the Democrats didn't act now, um, you know, what, what, what barrier, what line did he have to cross? Uh, so I think she was beginning, and some of her, her politicians, her members of Congress from Democratic areas, were getting heat from their constituents that they had to act. And then what might be interesting, and this is the thing, thing to watch in the next few weeks, there's about five or six, maybe, Republicans in the Senate out of the 53 who uh, may, they, they probably won't vote to acquit him, but there's going to be a vote in the next week or two about whether to call witnesses. So there's people like John Bolton, who used to work for Donald Trump, and uh, Democrats are trying to work on those, essentially. They're hoping that a few of them will cross the aisle and vote with Democrats because you only need 51 when you're voting on rules, 51 mm. and a simple majority. So there's a possibility that three or four. So people, we remember Mitt Romney, he was a presidential candidate a few years ago. He's now in the U.S. Senate. He arrived uh, in the Senate just after the last midterm elections and he, he was quite critical of Donald Trump. People are watching him. He's from Utah. Trump, I was there myself in Utah, Mormon country. They did vote for Trump, but just about in Utah. A lot of Republicans in Utah are not happy with Donald Trump, um, with his language, with his decorum. So you've got certain senators there. There's another woman called Susan Collins of Maine. She's up for election in November in her own constituency in Maine. That's in the Northeast. And she's going to have a tough battle because most people, the polls are showing in her state, even though she's a Republican, most of her constituents actually want, they don't like Donald Trump. So if she votes to acquit him, she could be in big political trouble for her own seat. So, you know, all politics is local, even here in America. And some of those senators, the senators who are in safe Republican seats, who are Trump is popular, are fine. But there is a, a small but core group of Republicans there who would be coming under pressure from their own constituents in these, in these states like Utah and Maine. So they're the ones to watch in the next few weeks. And you're right, this could do political damage to Donald Trump. Adam Schiff, he was the, the main Democrat guy yesterday who got up and spoke. And he, he was excellent. For two hours, he set out... The, the case against Donald Trump very clearly. And these senators, they, I was up there yesterday, they have to sit there really quietly, no phones, no laptops, they just have to sit and listen. And I suppose it was hard for some of those to listen to those actual facts because we have that phone call between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president. There's lots of incriminating information. Um, and I think a lot of them are quite uncomfortable to hear that so clearly put to them yesterday. You mentioned John Bolton and he's like perhaps an incendiary device potentially in this whole thing. If he were called and what he had to say was absolutely damning, could it shift the thinking of an, uh, hardly enough to get a two-thirds majority of Republicans still? 
Look, it, it, because of the figures, you know, he's got such a, uh, you know, wriggle room there with the, needing 67. It would be difficult to see. In saying that, if John Bolton, John Bolton was around in the Bush administration. He's um, he's a real foreign policy hawk, very strong line on Iran and North Korea. So in a way, he's more Republican than Donald Trump. So a lot of those Republicans in the Senate there would kind of respect John Bolton. He's been around for ages. He's a real true Republican. So they would probably be forced to listen to him. And depending on what he would say, because what we know from the impeachment inquiry at the end of last year, he's quoted all by every witness saying, you know, he was he was concerned about this issue uh, about Ukraine. You know, and we know that he was not happy with what Donald Trump was doing, that he and, and being quite honest, there were rumours here that when this story broke last September, it was just after Donald, uh, just after John Bolton left the White House. Was well, it a coincidence that the story emerged then? You know, if somebody leaked the story about mm. the whistleblower, you know, so and he has said he would testify. Um, now, it's, it's unclear. He, he did leave the White House. He did not leave on good terms with Donald Trump. But at the same time, I say he is a Republican and he believes that a president. This is one of the big debates that you're going to hear in the next few weeks uh, or days or weeks, which is in the U.S. Constitution. Presidents do have a lot of power. It's called executive power. So people like John, like John Bolton might say, well, look, you might not like what he's doing, but he does have the power as the president to do this. Whereas People in Congress say, well, no, but the members of Congress also have, you know, a role in restraining that, which they do, but it's, it's quite unclear in the Constitution. But if he was to testify, I think this would be really explosive. One of, one of the things that's happened in the last few weeks is that another figure, Lev Parnas, who worked with uh, Rudy Giuliani, that's uh, the former New York mayor, yeah. who is a, a lawyer to Donald Trump now and is right in the middle of all this, he was running essentially a shadow farm policy in Ukraine, going over to Ukraine all the time. This guy, Lev Parnas, was an associate of him who's been arrested. But he broke a silence in the last few weeks, and he's come out with new information. And I think it's quite damaging. He is suggesting um, that there was essentially a spying campaign against, it's quite sinister, really, against the former U.S. ambassador to Kiev, to, to Ukraine. She was Marie Yovanovitch, and she was essentially recalled, fired by Donald Trump back in the summer. And she had testified last year but he's suggesting that this guy, Parnas, and another guy were essentially spying on her, surveying her. So the big questions to be asked about, you know, who sanctioned that? Why wasn't the U.S. State Department protecting their diplomats? So that's new information. We'll see now in the next few days. Will that come out? But that's in the, in the trial. And if it does, again, that could be uncomfortable for some Republicans. So interesting. Watergate 2, perhaps. Watch this space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. Um Take it that he'll be acquitted and won't be convicted. He He's then assured uh, of the Republican nomination as a sitting president to go again for a second term. Now, here's the thing. The Democrats, just talk about them for a moment. They still haven't picked who's going to run against him. Biden's still leading the way. Bernie Saunders is there. What about Michael yeah. Bloomberg's late entry in? Yeah, and it's, it's funny, just this morning, actually, uh, um, there's a new poll out that's showing that Michael Bloomberg is doing quite well. So he's a former mayor in New York after Giuliani and very one of the, one of the world's most richest men, basically. He runs Bloomberg News. He owns that. Um, he entered late and his strategy really is to sit out the early voting states um, and then come in late. And he's hoping, hoping not without foundation, that the Democrats will not have decided on anyone and he could kind of ride in as an alternative that they may vote for her, vote for. And even this morning, just before I got on air here, I saw Donald Trump was tweeting about, he's, I think he's calling him Little Mike, Mini Mike Bloomberg is his name for him, 
but the fact that Donald Trump is tweeting about him, quite worried about him as a can, you know, as an alternative to him. So uh, I think he, he possibly, you know, we might have all written him off, but he, he could have a good strategy there because things are really heating up. This is the issue with the impeachment trial. It's happening in the Senate, but four members of the Senate are actually running for the Democratic nominee. So people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they want to be up in Iowa and New Hampshire campaigning. And instead, they're obliged now to sit through the impeachment trial, which is very long every day. It doesn't start at 1 p.m., goes on right into the night. Um, so that's going to give an advantage to some of their rivals, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg. He's the mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana, and they're doing quite well. So they're now up in Iowa campusing and um, the others are stuck here in Washington. So, But we should have a little more of an idea about how the Democratic race is going in the next six weeks or so. So um, I'm going up myself now to Iowa in about 10 days' time, a week's time. And that's the, for the first vote. This is the Iowa caucus, and that's for the first time Democratic voters in that state will choose who they think should be president. So that will give us a really good indication at that point, you know, who could really be the nominee. Yeah. They don't decide in earnest until July on it, but we, we will be getting a good idea now in the next six weeks or so. So even if Iowa and everybody watches it, it is the national barometer over there for, for the uh, nomination. Even if they do give an indication towards one or other of the names you mentioned there, Bloomberg will still be in the picture. Yes, he can still be in the picture even. It's just a question of momentum. So, you know, and there's, there's examples. I think actually Bill Clinton didn't, he, that's why he was known as the comeback kid. He didn't win those early voting states. He was in the race. But, um, but mostly you either win you, Iowa or New Hampshire, which is a week later. Um, but yeah, this is why it's interesting this time around because there's about four candidates, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And they're pretty much neck and neck in the polls. So it, it's very hard to know if there'll be a standout, you know, person. Now, mm. I've been talking to people who've been in this game a long time. I met somebody the other day and he was saying to me, no, look, somebody will get the momentum. He said, you know, he was predicting, you know, after a few weeks, someone will kind of, or, or a few people will start falling by the wayside. So, you know, if Elizabeth Warren pulls out, where are her votes going to go, for example? Um, and then this all culminates on the 3rd of March, that's Super Tuesday. And that's when more than a dozen states all vote including states like Virginia, California, which is huge. And at that point, I think there'll be a big sense of, of who will be ahead. But look, Joe Biden is, is, is ahead. Um, but I think it's fair to say he has disappointed on the campaign trail and he's been quite weak in the debate. In saying that, you know, I still think he's probably the one that, that at this point will emerge as a Democratic nominee. People in this country, Democrats, just want somebody who will beat Donald Trump. You know, that is the reality. I don't think there's much scrutiny on candidates this time around. They kind of don't even care who's going to run just to have somebody that they feel will have the best chance to take on Trump. And that's why the Joe Biden argument is that he's pretty centrist. He's not left wing like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So his argument is like, I'm the person who can win back disaffected, you know, working class voters who voted Republican but are really Democrat. I can communicate with them and win them over. He's probably right on that. But the challenge for him is that he first has to convince the Democrats in the primary process, um, who maybe you know want somebody a bit more left wing, he has to convince them of that.
uh, and get the nominee. But look, it, it really is all to play for uh, in the next few weeks on that. OK, so here then is the ultimate question. They want somebody to take on Trump. But we here on this side, listen, the Yanks are happy. The economy's flying. There's loads of new jobs. It's America first again with this man, Donald mm. Trump, regardless of whatever he does abroad or with his views and, and, and the, the letdown he's been to, especially a lot of the faiths and, and people who have real morals. Yeah. But can, yeah. can a Democrat beat him in the election later this year? Yeah, look, it's 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 very hard to know. I, I think the thing to remember about 2016 was that Donald Trump got very lucky. He only won, he didn't win the popular vote. And in the American election system, there are a few swing states that matter. So, you know, some states like Kansas will always vote Republican and they'll get those votes. But there'll be a few states like Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, you know, that, that can go either way. And Donald Trump won all those ones. But by a tiny margin, so I was up in Michigan, for example, very interesting state. Uh, Detroit is the big city there, but, you know, the auto industry has collapsed. A lot of disaffected people there. And I, I, I didn't realise this myself, but Do- Donald Trump only won that state by 10,000 votes. It's a state of 10 million people. But mm. that's how tight that race was. Um, so, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. All Democrats need to do is get their turnout up. Um, a lot of Democrats, I spoke to Democrats in Michigan who did not like Hillary Clinton and didn't vote for her. So one argument is, well, those will all vote for whoever's the candidate now because they, they're so abhorred by Donald Trump. Um, but at the same time, Donald Trump's people, they're running a very good campaign. They're getting out the vote. And there would have been a certain sector of Republicans who didn't like Trump who wouldn't have voted for him. Arguably, he's won them over. You know, he's, he's followed through on a lot of his, uh, his promises. So, you know, it's all it, it's actually going to be quite local, as I say, here in this election. Um, and, and I suppose that's what Democrats have to remember. Like, Elizabeth Warren will win everybody's vote in New York or Massachusetts, but that's no good because those states are going to go Democrat anyway. They need to get somebody who's going to win the swing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Florida to an extent. Other ones are in play too. Um, and Joe, the argument for Joe Biden is, you know, he's from Pennsylvania, he's the working man's kind of guy, and that he could win over uh, in those uh, those states. Also, He's, um, he's, he's very popular with African-American voters, and that's very important. I went down myself to South Carolina. Pete Buttigieg, who's really become this kind of unexpected star of this campaign, he's a young guy, about 38. Um, he's gay, he, but he was in the military, and he was, he's very religious. So he's, he kind of strikes a lot of, um, ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of Republicans. And he's from Indiana, so he understands farmers, he understands rural America. I was very impressed with him. I, I did a little phone, little uh, phone camera interview with him in South Carolina but I, I couldn't believe it. he went to a black church there and nobody had a clue who he was they literally had posters of Joe Biden they were like Joe's my man they were all telling me this did not know even who he was and I really saw that thing yeah this is the problem for someone like Pete Bush he doesn't have the name recognition he doesn't have the support in the African American community Joe Biden does and I think that is going to be an advantage for Joe Biden at, at, as, at least once you're past Iowa and New Hampshire and then the states that start voting are more racially diverse, places like South Carolina and Nevada. Um, so, you know, Joe Biden will benefit from that name recognition and popularity with the, with the African-American vote, too. Oh, look, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, taking us through what's happening at the moment in the Senate and looking ahead to the uh, party uh, nominations with the Democrats and ultimately the election. It's great to talk to you again. I really do appreciate you your time. And please, God, we'll talk again through the year.
Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. That's Suzanne Lynch there from Trimmin County Meath. Isn't she fantastic? And I understand why her family are so proud of her. She's brilliant. She really is. And she's the Irish Times Washington correspondent. And you can read her every day in The Times. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. We want you to smile with the best deals on a new Renault or Dacia in 2020. You can now inquire at blackstonemotors.ie. My next guest on Late Lunch today is a high-performance leadership coach, author of three books at this stage. Her most recent one is called Rise Before Your Bull. Kira Conlon's return to Late Lunch is timely, as many of her New Year resolutions and goals have gone by the wayside. Am I right? Am I wrong? Are we teetering on the brink as you listen today? However, the good news is it's never too late to reset or refocus. I'm right, am I, Kira? Absolutely, Jerry. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you with us this afternoon. Why is it that, you know, when Christmas goes and we turn into the new year and we say, OK, we're going to reset, refocus at this stage. And yet by this time of the month, an awful lot of it is gone. Why is that? One of the reasons is because a lot of the goals that people set on the 1st of January are things that they should do, not necessarily things that they really want or really desire. So a lot of it, as you know, is um, trying to get rid of the few pounds from Christmas and uh, need to get fit this year and I'm going to the gym. But it's very much out of obligation rather than that um, real definite decision that this is what I want and this is important. So it must be a desire that you have. You must want to do it and commit to it. Yes. And then it should be your single focus. So this is another reason why those New Year's resolutions can fail is we want to do it all on the 1st of January or in the first week of January. So that is an absolute recipe for disaster because we can't do it all. We have to focus on one thing and stick with one habit long enough that we um, make it part of our everyday now, you talk about, of course, the health and fitness is a huge one and we've been talking about it over the last few weeks as well. But I was thinking with you coming here today, I was trying to think of a few areas in life and to, maybe to throw them out to you and to listeners to think about, like financially, we, 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 of course, that, that concerns everybody as well. Yeah. Perhaps in our work life, we want to get a promotion, maybe we want to change direction entirely. Our, our love, you know, our love in, within yeah. relationships uh, as well. Um, perhaps uh, to become a better person in general, you know, you know, those type of areas. Are all those, you know, ones that come into the mix? Absolutely. There's so many things and, and this is the problem. We want to change everything. There are so many areas that we could improve on. And really the most important thing is to take one at a time. Okay, so just out of that type of list that I have there, you're better just taking one and dealing with that over the next year or, or is there a time limit on No, it? so you don't have to focus on it for a whole year or okay. until. So there, there are habits that are called keystone habits. So a keystone habit is a habit that is kind of a catalyst for other habits. So if you take um, running, for example, you decide you're going to start running this year and you create that habit, naturally, you're probably going to drink more water. You're going to be thinking about what you're eating and those other little habits, maybe you go to bed a bit earlier. So it creates this momentum in your life. So rather than focusing on all of those habits, you focus on the one thing 
running and then your life is gradually getting better. Isn't that interesting? Because they're all linked inextricably with the running as well. But there are other aspects of your life that you're dealing with. Absolutely. And I think I I mentioned it to you before. Another keystone habit is um, is making your bed in the morning. (laughs) So apparently people who make their bed are more productive. Because you've got a win. You've started the day with a simple win and the day gets better from there. So it gives you that confidence to keep doing the right thing. So that is a simple little task that anybody could do. Mea culpa, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) It sums up how the day progresses then. But look, come back to the point of, you know, breaking or changing negative habits. Yes. How, How do you go about that? So there's a behavioural loop that some researchers in MIT discovered and this behavioural loop, or some people call it the habit loop, says that every single habit that you create needs to have a trigger. Uh, You do that, then there's the habit itself and then there's a reward. So if you think of something like running again, the trigger could be leaving your clothes out the night before You go and do your run and the reward then is endorphins, maybe weight loss and you feel better and have more energy. So the same applies with a negative habit. There's always a trigger. So let's say your negative habit is having a biscuit um, or eating too many biscuits in the afternoon. So you look at what time of the day that's happening. Is it because of boredom? Is it because the biscuits are sitting there in your office in front of you? So you have to try and break that trigger. So try and remove, obviously, the biscuits, the obvious thing. Sounds very <laughs> obvious, but but very often it is. It's about just bringing these things to your attention and making the decision. And I think of another area, and it's related to food as well, where people say in the evenings they've been at work, you've maybe children to look after when you come in, planning for the next day, and you just decide, do you know what, I'll have a glass of wine or a beer here. And then it becomes a regular thing. Absolutely. So for that, what do you do? Remove the the alcohol, number one, and I'm a boredom person. So I tell you, I gave up the alcohol last year and it was out of um, this. I knew it was becoming a habit, just doing it because not necessarily because I felt like a drink. It was because there was one there. So absolutely, you have to try. And so replacement theory is um, the most popular when it when it comes to breaking bad habits. So replace the bad habit with a good habit or something that's that's better for you. Excuse me. But one of the things um, or or the the most important thing there for me with giving up the alcohol was looking at my beliefs around it. So this is what holds people back a lot of the time. It's it's what are you thinking about this habit? So in terms of alcohol, being Irish, we think life is no crack without alcohol. We think I needed to relax. But actually, all of those are they're not true. So it's by challenging those beliefs, it helps you then to become more conscious and make a better decision about what you want in your life. And are you off it still? Like I'm not completely off it, but the last time I had a drink was probably, I, I think I had one at Christmas. Um, so I can take it or leave it and I'm finding that I leave it more often than not. And then again, like you mentioned with the running, I take it there are accrued benefits and others. Absolutely, absolutely. More energy, you feel better, you know, life is uh, more in my control. Mm. Now, talk about goal setting. You and I spoke about this before, but just to refresh us on this. Is it 
really important to set goals and write them down, you know, or are they okay in your mind or what? Tell others about it. Yeah, apparently when you write them down, it increases your chances massively of achieving them because you've commit to it. But also um, there's some kind of filter in the brain that in a opens up once you've written it down and it helps you to see opportunities maybe that you wouldn't have seen before. But the thing about it is goals motivate us. So when we have something to work towards, if we don't set a goal, we might wander aimlessly. It's not that it's absolutely essential to set goals at the beginning of the year for your life to be good. But I think it's important. It gives us motivation. It allows us to progress, to move forward. And a goal doesn't have to be big and massive. It can be something like being more calm. It can be drinking more water. Whatever it is, it's helping you to move forward and and better yourself, have a better life. Who holds me accountable for my my goals? This is the one I want to hear about because it is me. Do you know what I mean? I write them down. Normally other people hold you accountable at home, in school. We're conditioned with this at work. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can get an accountability buddy. It can help. You know, that's why the coaching industry has become um, such a big part of our lives because people need somebody to hold them accountable. We're, we're much less likely to do it if we don't tell anybody about it. So share your goals, share them with people that support you, um, not people who are going to discourage you. Um, so, no, it, it is an important factor. So you and others can help you to get your goals. Do you know when you might just fall a little short or you veer off course? And, and then, you know, with some people, they get down, they get really disappointed. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So everybody, it's going to happen to everybody. Nobody is perfect. We all start a new habit, motivated and energised. And then uh, for some, it might be week three. For for others, it might be day three that um, they, they fall off the horse. So it is, first of all, forgive yourself. So if you make a mistake today, forgive yourself. You're not perfect. Acknowledge that. But the successful people, they don't stay down for long. They say, OK, let me start again tomorrow. But this probably comes to um, the idea of the the name of my book, which is uh, Rise Before Your Bull, my latest book on habit. Now, explain that. Will you just explain that title? So this 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 will answer answer the question as well. Exactly. So um, the title comes from or where I heard the title was years ago. I was at a concert in South Africa. And the musician was also an anthropologist, a very interesting man who lived with the Zulu people. So he would sing a song and then tell a story, something about the culture. And one story he told was about a Zulu chief who used to get up really early in the morning before all of his people, all of his animals. And he would um, piss before his bull, if I can say that. Um, that was how the story was told. And the, But the idea was that he was up first. He was in control. He was ahead of all of the people. And um, over time and through advice, I changed the name of the book from the, the former to Rise Before Your Bull. 
But it was only years later after I had mastered the habit of getting up early that I started to realise there was actually uh, a second meaning to rise before your bull. The first meaning for me was just get up early and get ahead, something that I'd wanted and tried to do for years. And then all of a sudden I realised that is how I did it. I rose before my bull and my bull, I don't want to say another curse word, but the bull in your head, the things I was telling myself, the excuses, the loopholes to get out of doing what I said I would do. So the typical ones first thing in the morning, the alarm goes off. What do you say? Oh, I'm too tired. Oh, I didn't get enough sleep. And you have, you know, a multitude of excuses on hand. So how I mastered it was getting out of bed before I let those thoughts kick in. I'd say to myself, not an option. I'm not listening. Get out of bed. So it's the thoughts in your head that are holding you back. What are those thoughts saying to you? And it's not just first thing in the morning. They go on all day. They tell you that you don't need to go to the gym or you're too tired to go to the gym or that one biscuit won't matter or that one packet of crisps or whatever your downfall is. So it's by challenging those thoughts, not just allowing them to happen, bringing them to the to the awareness. And that's how you can get over yourself and and move forward to do the things that you want to do. Fantastic. Stay there. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Short break on late lunch. Kira has brought us uh, some copies of her book, Rise Before Your Bull. And uh, we're going to come on in a moment when we come back to talk about successful people and the habits that they inculcate within themselves that makes them successful. And you can do it too. Would you like a copy of this book? 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text us. Here's the question. There's a famous bull in County Louth in the north of the county. It's history I'm talking about here now and folklore. What's the name of the place in North Loud? The name of the place associated with the bull in North Loud? Answers please again to 086-1800-658. Back with Kira in a moment. Rise Before Your Bull is Kira Conlon's latest book and I have copies and again the question, yes I will repeat it, somebody there, they're flying in the answers. There's a place in North Loud synonymous with a bull, the Irish name, you know, mythology, history, where is it? What's the name of that place? 086-1800-658, WhatsApp or text for a copy of the book. Now Kira, successful people, is there a common denominator, a common thread with successful people? Are they able to deal with what you said a few moments ago there, those thoughts, they don't let them get in the way or interfere? Is that one aspect of them? I, I suppose that's one aspect of it, yeah. People have mastered the, the self-talk and are more positive and their self-belief is stronger. But like everybody, we've all gone through it. We all do go through it. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, recognising it when it happens and not allowing it to stand in the way of your success. Can you mimic, can anybody or anyone mimic the traits and maybe you'd give us a few examples of traits of successful people. I believe so. I think it's it's down to a very simple thing. And with successful people, they simply do what they said they'll do. They're consistent, which is not like most of the human race. We say we'll do it and then we do it for two days. Procrastinators, <laughs> one and all. So, so that's the thing that they do it. They yes. get on with it. They, yeah. they say something and they action it and, and they, they follow, follow it through. through. 
follow through, definitely. So that, that's a pe- Go on. But there are a couple of habits and this is what um, I've observed over the last 10 years probably working with, with high performers. And there's uh, three particular areas of habits that I've seen these people have. The first is around productivity. So they get organised. They plan more. Um, the second is energy habits. So they look after their body. They have a habit of exercise. They probably um, eat better. Now, that depends on, on what the area is, but, but eating, sleeping and exercise, obviously. And then the third area, which is becoming more and more common, is that area of presence. So mindfulness. They're able to calm those thoughts, take control of those thoughts to be more positive. So mindfulness, as you know, is coming in and it's becoming more and more popular um, in organisations as well. They can see the value of this mindful movement for helping to reduce stress. It um, improves well-being. It's said to decrease um, depression and all of uh, many, many benefits that come from it. Doesn't the phone and access to this www and all the different platforms within that pull away as well a real danger to being in the present, living in the moment, being aware of what's going on around you, what you're talking about there? Absolutely. You know, and it's much harder for us nowadays because we have that phone. So very seldom are we still. When you're sitting waiting for public transport or the doctor, what do we do? We whip out our phones and have a little um, look at what's going on, which is all fine. But it's not fine when we are never in the moment when what happens then is our relationships, our relationships suffer as well as the quality of work because we're never focused. We're always distracted. So this is why it's really important to try and calm the mind, to try and take control of the thoughts. And by doing this, we are less likely to be stressed by what possibly might happen in the future. Now, in life, there are uh, major moments that happen. You know, we grow up, we're teenagers, we're under the wing and the roof of mum and dad, and then we move out and we go to work, hopefully most of us, or we study and we maybe meet somebody and we're on our own then and we have to get our own ship uh, sailing and show on the road. But there's a big moment in life. Then you work your lifetime wherever you maybe work at several jobs the way it's been today. Very few people stay in the one for the, for the entire working career. What about when you come to retirement? Would you talk to me about that for a moment? Because people feel, well, I've retired. Is it important to have goals to deal with these thoughts, to have plans. Absolutely, yeah. Because, you know, depression can set in when people don't have a purpose. So by setting yourself small goals, by having some daily habits, whether it's gardening or, you know, getting um, getting involved in the community, having some kind of group that, that um, you're involved in, it's really important. It's really important for everybody not to just let life happen, to have some kind of awareness of what you want your life to be like and take small little steps in order to, to, to make it so. Do you know when uh, you're in January and people love to look at holidays and, and it, you know, having a focus to something around that, is that in its sense a, a very positive thing, something to look forward to? 
It is, but people often do it because they're not happy. So they're always looking for something in the future. So this is where it's important to be comfortable in your own skin, to get used to being still, to not always be looking for happiness outside the moment or today. So while that's nice to always have something to look forward to, just make sure it's not that you're looking for distraction. I see. Running away in a way from dealing with what you have to deal with yourself. I hear what you're saying. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Um, You say, and and you've been quoted on this, that it is possible to feel good and energised every single day. It is. Absolutely. You know, and I've changed my life. As you know, Jerry. my first book was called Chaos to Control. My life was completely chaotic. I was unhappy, disorganised and I took the steps, simple steps. It's taken me many years to figure it out. That's why I put it all together in this book to simple steps, simple daily activities can completely change your life. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be um, all about willpower and discipline. The habits help you to do it without that need for, for the grit and the willpower. Because when you create a habit over time, you automate it. So it gets easier the more that you do it. Now, the book, uh, they want to know, where's this book available? How can they get it, Rise Before Your Bull? So it's available on Amazon. It's available online mainly and my website, which is com. Now, you have um, a a course coming up. I also have an online course on the subject called the Habit Mastery Programme. And that's the information is on my website as well. That's starting next Wednesday, the 29th of January. Okay, so check it out on Kira's website. So if you're to leave us with a nugget of wisdom before you go, your final say to late lunch listeners today, what would you say? Start small. Whatever it is, you can write a book with 10 minutes a day. You can get fit with 10 minutes walking. Just start small and keep them. That will start the momentum going. Kira Conlin, thank you so much for joining us again. Words of wisdom. Wish you well. Thank you. Here to the ground, the farming independent, Elm Grove Farm at Gormanstown in County Mead. I say it again, he is Ireland's most well-known farmer and he's with us on Late Lunch today in studio. Any man that arrives with a bunch of daffodils and a few eggs for me, well, you know something. Etting to butter you up, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Tara McCullough, you're welcome to the show again. It's great to have you with great us. Great to be here. How many flowers will you cut on the farm this well, year? Well, yesterday we picked 200,000 stems in one day. Um, so I've got a... a a crew of 36 pickers out in the field you, if uh, I was just took a little video there this morning I stuck it up on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, it's just one of the pickers picking away they'll pick a stem almost every second every two seconds um, they're they're like athletes and they comb the fields we grow about 85 acres of daffodils and they're all people kind of say to me hang on a second what do you do with daffodils it's January stop it and it, what we have is because we're we're supposed in supermarkets we're actually exporting them out to places as far away as Poland we we have about 30 different varieties and they come in sequentially uh, throughout the season so we have a constant supply of daffodils right up to Easter So 
if I take 85 acres and you pick about 200,000 stems yesterday, yeah. do you ever hazard a guess at how many you'll cut in a season? Uh, you're millions. talking millions. Millions. And, and probably north of 10 million. <sighs> yeah. Wow. That's a lot of picking. That's a lot of picking. It's a lot of picking. And, and, and all has to be done by hand, Jerry. Not what, there's no machine that can pick daffodils and the the... The reason is, I mean, obviously you come in and just kind of mow them out of it. But I want, I when I plant a daffodil bulb in the autumn, I want to leave it there for a couple of years. And if we go in and just cut the field with it mechanically, it'll cut all the leaves. And the leaves are the solar panels feeding the bulbs in the ground. And I mm. want them to come back and give me another flower the next year. So there's no way it is manual. And, and picking them like that, because they are a closed bud. Now, you have a couple of bunches which yeah. are there today. If we put those into water in a warm area, yeah. how soon will they open? I, I, I picked my first bunch this year on about the 2nd of January. I tell a lie, it was the 6th of January. Uh, it was actually two weeks later this year than last year. And that's because the ground is is wet. Uh, when, you're, when you're farming, you're so uh, familiar with the minutest changes in the landscape and the land and what it's doing and how temperatures fluctuate a little bit because the crops are always telling you what's going on. And we knew that straight away when we started in the first week of January this year that the crops were two weeks behind. Um, That... uh, that bunch there, I, I've actually forgotten what I was talking about there. No, I'm asking you to bring that bunch to life. We put yeah. them into a little put, vase I, I, outside I, I, I in water in a right. warm I, area. How long? I picked uh, two weeks. You get two weeks. Will uh, Well, it, it'll flower in a week and then you get about two weeks of, of blooms. I was going to say the bunch I picked on the 6th, <laughs> I was looking at it today and it's still good, you know. Very today good. Today's the 23rd of yeah. January. Yeah. And you'll have the enjoyment of watching them day by day and then when they flush out. What's the story with the eggs? Yeah, I brought in four eggs just to show you that that's our latest little enterprise. So um, I'm a bit of a nutty professor at home on the farm. Fellas nearly dread to see me come around the corner with the what's the next idea, you know, because we have tried our hand at raising turkeys and Christmas trees and they went grand over the Christmas. But then I said, why don't we do a few free range eggs as well? So we have 10 hens now and they're laying furiously (laughs) and I can barely keep up with them. So, uh, yeah, we sell like, you know, six eggs for two euros, free range eggs at the gate there at the weekend. Lovely. And they look beautiful as well. I will enjoy a fresh egg. Thank you so much. And just I'm just going to remind listeners tomorrow, Tara Walker from East Coast Cookery School. We start a new series on late lunch called Back to Basics. And guess what the subject is tomorrow of the first? Eggs. So that's to look forward to tomorrow. Let's talk now to you about agriculture. And of course, you're in the news. You're never out of the news between the protests in Dublin. You're having a big DIFA, having a big conference on climate the last few days. And it's all out there about climate change. Look, I've been talking to vegetarians. Vegans have been with me so far this year and their whole mantra has come centre stage now. Can I ask you this? Do farmers feel... They're under threat from what's happening in the world at the minute. Very much so. Um, And it's a shame, you know, uh, vegetarian, uh, my sister's vegetarian and, you know, we get on grand. It's all good in the same way. and, And, you know, vegetarianism, veganism, it's basically, you know, you have a set of beliefs and you stick to them. And, you know, it's the same as a Catholic and a Protestant sitting down and having a pint or whatever. You know, it's just a set of beliefs. It doesn't mean that you're enemies. You need to be sworn mortal enemies. Uh, and yet we have this polarisation in the debate. And one of the things that 
freaks me out a little bit um, is that it's hard to know who to believe um, because, you know, you've got all these, you know, professors with rakes of letters behind their name and they come, the one minute one fellow's telling you, well, you know, we have to slash the national herd because that is the only way to reduce emissions in Ireland. And then the next day, there'll be another professor who will say, well, you know what, methane emissions, methane actually disappears after 12 years in the atmosphere and therefore, you know, the carbon that um, that cows or ruminants are releasing into the atmosphere, that's a cycle in comparison to fossil fuels. When you burn carbon, you release it, it's never coming back. Yes. Cows, it's a cycle. You know? And I've been reading that where an expert came out and said methane from cows in Ireland shouldn't be regarded in the same breath or analysed in the same way as CO2, which you're talking about there. So we're all on this journey of trying to figure and muddle our way through this. And farmers are no different to anyone else. Uh, The only problem is we've got more skin in the game than anyone else because we have to figure this out quicker than everyone. And at the moment, we're confused. There's a lot of mixed messages coming at us. And... Like even it's not just climate change, Jerry. So, you know, this week there was a, a, an article in the Guardian newspaper talking about um, that Ireland had this massive calf welfare tsunami that was going to engulf the country. And for your listeners that may not be familiar with this, the the context is that the Irish dairy herd Dairying has been the big success story in Irish agriculture. It is the only game in town out there in terms of paying the bills for the vast majority of farmers. Because, as we've seen, beef isn't paying any bills. But because dairying has been so successful, the national herd has increased in numbers. And we now have, you know, 1.5 million, 1.4 or 5 million cows calving down in a very concentrated window in the next kind of two or three months. And the problem, Jerry, is that the calf that the dairy cow produces is not bred for beef per se. It's bred for its dairy ability. Yeah, it's dairy genetics. But of course, half of the calves are going to be bull calves. And the fear is that if there's no confidence, and no profit in the beef sector, that there isn't going to be an outlet for these calves. And then farmers, dairy farmers, are going to be looking at these calves in their farms and they're going to be faced with having to put them down. And this is not an unprecedented situation in the sense that this has happened on farms all over the world. Uh, there was problems in uh, New Zealand, in Australia. It happens in the UK. And traditionally, Ireland has never had this issue. And we kind of pride ourselves on being, you know, great animal lovers and, you know, small family farms. And it's not industrial scale. So we don't have any of these welfare problems. The The, the fear is that we could have a problem. Okay, and The Guardian have come out with this article and I saw you commenting (laughs) several tweets on it and and across social media. 800,000, they said, you know, male calves would be put down. You've refuted that completely. Uh, They say some some of them be going to European veal farms, into the Middle East. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, so... What there's a hint of truth truth in a lot of that Guardian article, but there was the broad brushstrokes that I really felt misrepresented the situation. So yes, there could be a problem with a proportion of the calves that are born on dairy farms, but it is simply false to say that there will be eight hundred thousand unwanted calves uh, uh, born on farms over the next uh, three months. 
the the challenge is how do we deal with the maybe 30, 40, 50,000 extra calves that are coming on the farms compared to last year, especially if the confidence in the beef sector is lower. Um, so, and then are they all exported? No, they're not all exported. Yes, a lot of them go to veal units in, in Holland, but calves are not put on boats and boated to North Africa. Yes, there are animals from Ireland shipped to North Africa, but they tend to be like Weanlands, heifers, uh, stock. I mean, the Guardian article mentioned stock going to Rwanda. Does mm. farmers donate heifers to poor and starving and subsistence farmers in Rwanda as a charitable gesture. And suddenly this was all balled up with our calf welfare problem that's going to be hitting farms. So again, you're talking, we hear that man in America mentioning fake news. And and, and, and there can be fake news. And and you went in there and refuted that on, on, on several levels. Here's the thing, just back to the emissions before I take a quick break. I have a minute. 34% 34% of Ireland's emissions coming from agriculture, 60% of that uh, attributed to methane. Uh, as you mentioned, the dairy herd is up around about 1.4, 1.5 million. The government wanted it reduced by 10 to 15% by 2030. But there's good news today in the Irish Times. Yeah, so the only thing, solution that's been posited up to now was you got to cut your cull, animals, cull, cull, the cull the herd. Yeah. And, you know, again, we had these kind of like wild things like just cull them all. We don't need them anymore. We can all go vegetarian. Um, which horrified farmers uh, who spent lifetimes, generations building up herds and, you know, blood, sweat and tears. Anyway, the reality is that we will be able to. And I'm one of a generation of farmers who have always looked to technology and science to overcome the challenges. And, you know, even to go way back into the, you know, the 50s when my granddad first bought his first tractor, when my dad put in a, a milking parlour, the first milking parlour in the area, when 22 years ago we bought the first robotic milking machines in the country to get o- overcome labour. There is always progress and development on farms and farmers like me who make a living out of farming trust that commercial farming can continue if we adopt the technology and use it wide- wisely. And the technology, I think, is what's going to save our bacon on emissions. Yes, and, and just to say what's happening is there's research going into uh, getting into the animal's gut to it's deal with breeding. the enzymes there yeah. and the, the, uh, they're looking at particular strains of dairy cows who don't emit. So the, within any species you'll have outliers and they're looking for the outliers that do less belching. It's not about the fart and everyone gets obsessed <laughs> about farting cows. It's not the fart, it's the belching. <laughs> and it's the belching that emits the methane and that's the problem as a greenhouse gas and we can breed cows that like it sounds a bit fantastical but this is actual fact we can breed cows that belch less, less. <laughs> well I've learned something on the show I learn every day but there you are I thought it was the hindquarters it's not it's out from the gob you never know what you learn on late lunch stay with us we're down on the farm this afternoon with Darren McCullough there's going to be a new man at the helm shortly. You have a, a new uh, boss at the IFA. Tim Cullinan is coming in. Yeah. He's coming in at challenging times. Well, you know what? It is a challenging time, but I don't think it, there's ever an easy time to be at the head of uh, a farming organisation like the IFA. He's got a huge number of challenges. Uh, first and foremost on the hit list should be, you know, how to pull farmers together. We've had a massive fragmentation of farming representation over the last 
one to two years and so every like it's because of social media a fella can set up a WhatsApp group suddenly he has you know a, a thousand lads in a WhatsApp group he can organise a protest hundred lads turn up they can hold up the traffic but the problem is the follow through Jerry. you know you don't just start up a farm organisation in the back of a fag packet and away you go you need to have resources you need to be able to lobby up in Europe what I w- was making the point uh, in when I was writing about this uh, in a recent uh, Farming Independent was that, you know, in Romania, there's 3.4 million farmers. So just because some lads have pulled together 10,000 farmers, which admittedly is a lot of Irish farmers, but just because you've pulled together 10,000 farmers to uh, protest about beef prices doesn't mean you have a lot of clout in Europe. When you go to Europe, which is where uh, the big decisions are made, you're going to be way down at the back of the queue because the guy, there's the Romanian guy representing 3.4 million uh, farmers, there's an Italian guy representing 1 million, there's a Spanish guy representing 1.5 million, there's a French guy representing a million. You know, on the big picture stuff, we still need the IFA. So uh, I hope Til Til Conan rises to the challenge. He's got a lot of challenges. That's just one of them. Of course, he's got the whole, what we've been talking about so far. You know, All that is on on, on his plate as well. But here's the thing, just coming back to the protest and like, Really, the, the last one really got up an awful lot of people's mm. noses. And you know this as well. People have real sympathy. You, you must recognise this. Mm. There's huge sympathy for farmers and massive sympathy but for the beef. it has its limits. Yes. And, 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 you know, I thought those limits were just being stretched to breaking point last time round when you see people saying, all right, lads, we're behind you and yeah. we want you to have a fair price. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think it's... It's almost, dare I say it, too easy for farmers to jump into their tractors and tear up their old 50 kilometre gearboxes in them so they can come from all over the country in a couple of hours and cause traffic mayhem. They've made a point, but what's it going to achieve? Okay, interesting. Watch this space down the road. And you do make a good point that in uh, organisation and uh, coming together with numbers through the proper channels, you get to government here and then you take your case on into Europe where you're fighting as well. The Honestly, just before we leave this point, and I, I put my cards on the table here, farmers deserve more. They have to be paid more. You can't have the same price as 20, 30 years ago. I talk about this race to the bottom in all aspects of food again. This has to be resolved. Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's pointless saying, you know, uh, that you can somehow legislate or strong arm supermarkets into paying a higher price than they can otherwise buy the food. Remember, Ireland is a... In the global market, we rely on exporting billions of stuff all over the world every year, whether it's beef or computers or whatever. So we've we've got to be able to, if we want to, it's a double-edged sword, right? So if we want to be able to access everywhere in the world with our produce, then we have to also accept that we have to be open to taking in produce from anywhere in the world. And that's the tough part. So a Polish guy is able to produce beef at less than an Irish guy, maybe, because he's paying lower wages. And the Brazilian guy is able to produce at half nothing because he's got almost hardly any regulations. And really, the challenge is to get the consumer to buy into what their local person is doing. So the reason that, for example, I got into growing turkeys was I said to, look, if you care about your meat and where it comes from and you want to be able to trust that implicitly, 
go local, go to a person you know that you can have the chat with and have have absolute confidence in your food. And maybe that's where the opportunity for small producers in Ireland is. But we're not going to be able to just say, listen, I want, you know, uh, a five or a kilo for my beef and I don't care what the world market price is. That's not going to work. Uh, the market dictates and, and that that is for sure. There's no doubt about that. Um Look, before we finish chatting today, and I always enjoy meeting you and having a conversation, uh, you were down with Matt- Matthew McGeehan, who we know well in, in North Loud Cooley. Uh, and, oh, God, I've given the answer away, I think, to a little book giveaway I've been doing. <laughs> anyway, isn't that an irony? Uh, the sheep situation, and we've had it reported here in LMFM News, the yeah. worrying of sheep, the loss. It's shocking. Yeah, uh, I was up there filming for Ear to the Ground. Uh, we're still in the, the middle of the filament season, and... Uh, <laughs> If you ever want to know what really absolute cold feels like, stand around with a TV crew in the middle of a field in January, um, and and then better again go up the side of the the hills in the coolies. But actually, we had a gorgeous day down there. It was beautiful. The sun shone on us. Um, it, it is a serious situation. I mean, I, I've been reporting on ear to the ground for 17 years mother god it always makes me feel old when I admit that and I've done um, you know stories about sheep attacks from day one that I started out in uh, reporting on, on farming stories and the situation hasn't changed despite all the new technology you know like a couple of years ago it was made mandatory for you to microchip your dog and this was supposed to be the magic bullet yeah because if there's a microchip in a dog, then, you know, we can figure out exactly who the dog belongs to and we can sort all this out like grown-ups, yeah? The problem is that uh, you are obliged to have a microchip in your dog, but you're not obliged to update the database. So in the same way as your car, if you're selling your car, there's a logbook and that has to be signed and updated and it's always updated. The same doesn't happen for microchips and dogs. So the system doesn't work. And you've got people like Matthew who come out some mornings and find tens, if not hundreds of their sheep damaged, run ragged by vicious dogs. And these can be just little terriers. So the message today is, first of all, to dog owners, and I know you've, you did this 17 years ago and repeat today, but we have to repeat it. Always know where your dog is. Make sure your dog is safe and sound, because even the friendliest dog, as you know, will worry sheep. Yeah. You may not, oh, he wouldn't do it or she wouldn't do it, but they will. They have a perplexity to do this. So know where your dog is. Make sure they're in during the day at night time. And on the chipping, let's get to grips with this. And it, the, another key point is, Jerry, it's not the dog's fault. It's the owner's fault. Absolutely. Darren McCullough, I have to leave it there. Thank you so much for dropping in to Late Lunch today. You're so welcome. Never ceases to amaze me how a word comes into the urban dialect or people start talking about it all of a sudden and then it's worldwide. Who ever heard of the coronavirus but a few days ago? Well, you know all about it now. It's a mysterious SARS-like virus which has spread in China. The city of Wuhan is mentioned prominently in the news but now Beijing and Shenzhen. It's moved to Thailand and a case confirmed in Japan and We've just heard uh, a while ago that the New Year celebrations, the Chinese New Year, which is on the 25th of January, the celebrations in Beijing have been cancelled. Well, we're going to find out a little more about it by going to that part of the world. We began in Washington. We're finishing late lunch in Hong Kong today because I'm joined on the line by 
a young man who spent six months with us on late lunch here in LMFM as an intern and he's doing really well for himself in Hong Kong. He's a journalist with Bloomberg, Aaron McNicholas. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you so much for taking our call. Will you start, uh, Aaron, by uh, just explaining where did this originate and how long ago? Well, the first uh, sign that something was not right was maybe in the last week of December. Wuhan is a city of 11 million people in central China, which, to give you some context, is about five hours away by train from Hong Kong. So it originated there, and we believe it was originated at a wet market, uh, which is where Chinese people will go to buy li- to buy live uh, foodstuffs. And we believe it originated from an animal-to-human transmission um, at one of these wet markets. We don't know what exactly was the nature of the transmission, the initial one, but that is how we believe it originated. And um, it has now since become clear that it can transmit by a human-to-human transmission, although it does seem that um, simply walking past someone on the street um, is not likely to spread the uh, infection. It takes a little more longer-term contact than that. But regardless, people across China are not taking any chances. Um, And, of course, you will have seen the news that Wuhan itself has been effectively put under quarantine. Um, Outbound flights and trains have been curtailed and people's personal movement inside the city has also been severely restricted. So here in Hong Kong, we've had two confirmed cases so far. These cases, unlike the number of fatalities we've seen in Wuhan, the cases in Hong Kong have not thankfully been fatal, um, but there is a heightened sense of alert among the city's population now. You are seeing more face masks on the street and more advice being shared among employers to their employees now. So um, even though it's too early to call this an emergency by, by any means, um, there is a heightened sense of, of alertness going on now because we have seen, as you said, cases cropping up much further away than Hong Kong. So it is time to not take chances and be aware of your personal hygiene. Now, I know the World Health uh, have been meeting, meeting yesterday and considering their response, and they've just held back for the moment in declaring this a worldwide emergency. But uh, coming back to what you said there, Aaron, uh, late December, have the authorities been slow to react to this? And have they understood from the, the get-go that this is a really serious matter that could spread like wildfire? Well, that is mean, the question. And um, I can speak to the Hong Kong case with most certainty, The two confirmed cases I mentioned to you, which were publicized this week, um, the first case was a man from Wuhan who arrived in Hong Kong via the high-speed rail from China. And at that time, the the inspection checks um, at the point of entry from immigration, I think there was a temperature check um, in place. Um, That has been heightened, of course, this week. But in the weeks leading up to this, I would say the checks have been minimal, um, and that, of course, leads to questions being asked of the local government officials in the local health department as to why this wasn't put in place a lot sooner. And in the case of that one man who um, showed feverish symptoms on arrival, um, he was immediately put under quarantine and sent to a local hospital. But what is even more concerning is that he arrived in Hong Kong with four family members, and those four family members, although they showed no symptoms, they arrived in Hong Kong, they entered Hong Kong, they spent one night in a hotel and then moved on to the Philippines. So that right there shows you that, well, um, there is a certain, I guess, slow um, response to how serious this could be. 
And um, But I would imagine now with the heightened publicity we've seen this week that uh, there will be fewer chances taken and we're going to see um, stepped up security measures at um, airports and train stations and so on. We're watching television, Aaron, and seeing the images. And my little granddaughter, she's only four, said to me last night, why are all the people uh, over there wearing face masks? So obviously people are taking their own precautions. Any advice from the health authorities to uh, keep yourself safe and uh, perhaps ensure that you won't catch this corona? Um, There are simple measures that you can take um, from a matter of point of view of personal hygiene that can at least reduce your chances of... um, running into difficulty face masks, although they are proper surgical masks, I should say. There are some people I've noticed in Hong Kong that are wearing masks that could be charitably described as decorative but not particularly helpful. Mm. The surgical masks have some basic air filtering capabilities that should, um, you know, provide some level of protection. The difficulty here is that um, the symptoms that one could exhibit from this virus are going to be um, at, the, at least at the early stage, quite indistinguishable from a normal flu. And it is flu season already. So what the difficulty is, is that if you come across a person or you experience coughing or a mild fever, um, you don't know until you get yourself checked by a professional whether you have just an ordinary, what we would call an ordinary flu, or if you have this, this virus. So that is a difficulty, and that is, of course, giving rise um, not just, I mean, not just in Hong Kong, but I have no doubt in other parts of China as well, to a sense of, you know, heightened alert. And I would say fear in some cases that now every time you might see social media photos of, you know, people being um, inspected by uh, officials in uh, full body suits and things like that. There were photos of that going around on Hong Kong Facebook today, for example. So because of the symptoms um, are quite indistinguishable from a normal flu, um, that does give rise to, I think, a sense of heightened fear. Um, but as I said, uh, if you want to look after your personal hygiene, masks are one thing you can do. And, you know, it goes without saying, wash your hands more frequently or keep a bottle of hand sanitizer close to you so you can, uh, you know, keep, your, keep an eye on your uh, hygiene that way. Absolutely. Similar to precautions for the uh, flu here uh, back home in Ireland. Now, um, Saturday, the Chinese New Year begins. A massive celebration in China, Hong Kong and all over the world for people of Chinese descent. 25th of January, the year of the rat. We hear uh, in the last uh, hour and a half or so that Beijing have cancelled the celebrations. Uh, Is there potential for more cancellations, greater lockdowns right across China? Absolutely. And um, the thing is, um, whether they are officially cancelled or not, I think you're going to notice uh, people just less willing to uh, come to places that are likely to be highly populated with a lot of people. Here in Hong Kong, which, as you know, is an extremely densely populated city with, you know, very tightly packed uh, people, uh, groups of people walking down the street at all times. Um, I just, for example, passed a Lunar New Year Fair um, site that uh, is normally packed with people, although they often do in previous years come out more often at the weekends. But regardless of that, in the weekday evenings, you normally see them more crowded. But this year, of course, the crowds have thinned. Hong Kong, of course, has been dealing, as you know, with months and months of anti-government protests. And that already has resulted in a lack in a decline in tourism that would have led to fewer mainland Chinese tourists arriving in Hong Kong. But if they needed any less, any more incentive not to travel, this um, outbreak would be the reason why. So I think 
yes, you're going to see more official cancellations, but regardless of that, people are going to be less willing to travel and they're going to be taking their own precautions to ensure their health. So real dampener because uh, Saturday is the, the start of the year, but the celebrations go on for about 15 days until the 8th of February. So a real prospect of people being told no travel, you're not able to move, families won't be able to visit or reciprocate. That's looking like uh, very likely at this uh, point in time. Certainly true. And like I said, this couldn't have come at a worse time for China because this mm. is the year. This is the time of year when Chinese people um, travel uh, various places travels oftentimes to their place of where they grew up to spend time with their family um, over the Chinese New Year period. And, obviously, and of course, the real concern, I think, from the point of view of your listeners is the possibility that Chinese students who are studying abroad, possibly in Ireland, maybe in the US, maybe in other parts of Europe, they go home to spend time with their families. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen, but it's not impossible. They could get exposed to um, an infected person, and then they go back to continue their studies um, in their uh, in their in their country of choice, and they uh, that is how the epidemic goes worldwide. So obviously that is you know uh, something that is only speculative, but it's not impossible, and um, that is why uh, you see the measures you're seeing now, where uh, travel within China has been curtailed, and um, obviously from a point of view of public health, we hope that uh, it can be contained effectively. You make a very good point there, Aaron, and I'd say that's, uh, I know you're speculating, but it is extremely likely and it's the way that uh, these things do actually spread around the world with the ease of travel nowadays. It's fantastic to talk to you uh, and I just remind people if they want to follow you, it's Aaron McNicholas and he's a journalist with Bloomberg in Hong Kong for the latest there on the uh, coronavirus and of course what's been happening there uh, for the last number of months. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today, Aaron. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Aaron McNicholas there. Great fellow. He was here with us for six months on the late lunch on LMFM Radio, uh, his internship, and he's really doing well for himself out there. And, and the very best luck to him, and he's very obliging to take our call today. I do appreciate it. Louise, the book. Yes, we've had lots of people looking for Kira Conlon's latest book, Rise Before Your Bull. Who have you there? Who are they going to? Oh, they're going to Owen Tobin in Athboy and I have Nicholas Coyle in the Knoll. Well done to both of you and I want to send one. I have another one here and I'm going to send it out to Mary Conroy Knockbridge Dundalk. She's a fantastic LMFM and late launch listener and there's one of the books there for you as well. Thank you to everybody. Cooley I was looking for sure. I gave it away with Darren McCullough where the famous bull in mythology came from. Thorn Bow Cooley. That's a lot on late launch for this afternoon. Thank you so much for your company on the show. Final show of the week to come tomorrow Friday from half one. We leave you in the company of the brilliant Jackson 5.
The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. We want you to challenge us for the best deal on a new Renault or Dacia in 2020. You can now inquire at blackstonemotors.ie. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.